What is up, Brad fans? How you doing? How you living? Today, we're talking about ants, but maybe not in the way that you're expecting. And that's because my guest today, Yuko Ulrich, is not an entomologist. She's not an insect scientist. Rather, she is a behavioral ecologist and evolutionary biologist by training. And her work is really focused on social behavior, specifically the interplay between social organization and disease resistance in animal societies. So yes, there will be reference to the pandemic in this episode. So if your research interests center around social behavior, group living, and its relation to disease dynamics, you might think to jump to an organism like chimpanzees. They're the most related to us. They're the most similar to us. We've heard genetically and all of these things. We can kind of see in their living our reflections of our own. But if you want to ask very specific and fundamental research questions about social living and social behavior and how these things affect our success or our risk to disease, you're actually much better off studying the organism that has taken social living to the extreme. Ants. For one thing, ants are a little easier to bring into the lab and observe. But as we'll hear from Yuko, there's a very specific type of ant, the clonal raider ant, which is particularly well-suited for asking these questions. And she'll explain all this in the conversation, but it has to do with controlling for confounding factors like age and genetics. This species of ant also doesn't have a queen, which again plays a role in how well-suited it is to answering some of these fundamental questions in a controlled experimental way. And beyond these sort of technical experimental benefits, as we've mentioned, ants and their relatives in the group of eusocial insects have taken social living to the extreme, and they've been very successful. Ants, as Yuko tells us, have come to find a way to live in nearly every single ecological niche on the planet. And they're one of the largest sources of biomass. So just by weight, they're one of the largest organisms, groups of organisms on the planet. So it seems like a no-brainer then if you want to ask questions about disease dynamics in social groups or the benefits of living in a social group, why not look at one of the most successful social organisms on the planet? Now, at this point, you might be asking yourself, don't we already know the answer to these questions? Whether group living is successful or not? We just talked about how successful it is for, for ants, and we know how successful humans are. Or when it comes to disease dynamics, the question of, does your behavior, what you do in the group, where you go, what your role is, expose you to different pathogens? Your intuition is to probably say, yes, it does. Again, something that we may have experienced during the pandemic. Who we interact with, where we go, what we do for a job might expose us to different types of risks and pathogens. But this is where evolutionary biology and experimental biology become so important. Because without actually asking and answering these fundamental questions, we can't go further and then ask the next level of question. What is it about group living that makes it so successful? Is it an efficiency thing, a scaling up thing, the division of labor, does it allow us to specialize? Is that what provides the benefit? Can we maintain homeostasis better if we all have our little tasks that we're all trying to do? 
when it comes to diseases. Yes, what you do, where you go, will affect your disease risk. But then, how does the group respond? What are the defenses that a group employs in order to protect individuals or the group itself from these types of risks? And this is where things get really interesting. As you'll hear, ants have developed some pretty fascinating ways to uh, guard the group against infection. And this was actually a really, a really important takeaway for me because I think we sometimes forget the benefits of group living, especially in this polarizing, isolating time that we're living through. As a group, we actually have a lot of defenses available to us that solitary organisms don't have. And be sure to stick around to the end of the conversation because whenever you're talking about group living, individuals' behavior and their uh, disease risk, how we respond to infections, we are going to bump up against that classic arms race between parasite and its host. And what happens when the parasite takes that to the extreme? That's right, host manipulation and zombie parasites. And now Yuko was cautious and she made sure to point out that they can't yet prove that the organism, the parasite that she's using in her infection experiments with the ant is a true zombie parasite. She and her lab group have found some tantalizing clues as to how this parasite may be influencing ant behavior for its own benefit. And she describes some pretty interesting and kind of funny experiments that they're now undertaking in her lab to start to tease this out. So I really want to thank, again, Yuko Ulrich for joining me on this show. This was a really fascinating conversation for me, given my background in parasites and ants. And so it was a real treat for me, uh, and I hope for you too, to hear from someone who is so knowledgeable on these topics, who has such expertise and interesting perspectives, who's done such great work in this area. And I want to point out again that this chat was a wonderful insight into and reminder of the importance of experimental biology for answering these fundamental questions about traits that many organisms on the planet share, including us humans, and which again may seem obvious on the surface, but are a little more complex once you start moving to those next level questions. But of course, before we get to the conversation, I have to ask you to rate, review, subscribe to the podcast, wherever you're getting podcasts. This is one of the biggest things you can do to help out the show and increase our visibility on these platforms in the algorithms. We also now are available on YouTube, podcasts for YouTube. And we'll see in the future if we expand into video. Let us know in the comments of our social media, Instagram, at 2 brad for you X, at 2 brad for you or wherever you're getting your podcasts in the reviews, in the comments. Let us know if you'd like to see video, if you'd like to see some shorter clips, some dives on some topics uh, on a YouTube channel. That would motivate me to, to maybe create that content for you. Anyway, rate, review, subscribe. Biggest thing you can do to help us out. Follow us on social media at 2 brad for you We are on X, although not very active there, and Instagram, where we tend to be a little more active. Either way, the handle's the same, at 2 brad for you You can always reach out to the show as well via email, 2 brad for you at gmail.com. I will read everything you send, 
and try to respond either on the show or personally. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. And here is my fascinating conversation about evolution of social living, disease dynamics, and the clonal raider ant with Yuko Ulrich. Welcome, Yuko Ulrich. Hopefully I got that pronunciation somewhat correct. Thank you so much for being here on the show. Uh, I'm really excited to talk about ants, but not just ants. What ants can sort of teach us about different things that, that are applicable to human lifestyle. So group living, social living, and then how we deal with infection. So this is going to be really exciting for me. I used ants uh, in my PhD work, so I'm a little familiar with the with the insect. But why don't you introduce yourself to the audience? Give us a little bit of you know, where you are now, where you're working now, uh, the focus of your research, and maybe you could explain to us how you got into this research and working with ants. Were you always interested in insects or was it something along the way, your academic journey that triggered ah, this is a system I could work with. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for the invitation to to have this conversation with you, Brad. Um, so, yeah, I'm a uh, so-called Lise Meitner group leader at the Max Planck Institute for Chemical Ecology. That's in Vienna, Germany. Uh, and I've been here with my group for about two years and a half. I'm a behavioral ecologist slash evolutionary biologist by training. <clears throat> and I've been working on all kinds of social insects ever since uh, I was a master's student, so for a long time now. Um, and so I kind of started working on social insects because um, they are so kind of incredible in evolutionary uh, biology terms, right? They have evolved this, those really pretty unique forms of social organization. Um, they show some of the most sophisticated forms of altruistic behavior and so on. So they really do things that no other animals do. Um, and so for that reason, you know, they take a really prominent uh, place, I think, in evolutionary biology classes. And this is where I really fell in love with the topic um, a long time ago. And then I decided to do my PhD on social insects when I was on bumblebees. And I uh, studied disease already at that time, disease transmission in colonies of bumblebees. And then for my postdoc, I decided to uh, switch system because I had heard of those uh, strange ants that I didn't know existed before. Those are the clonal radar ants, and that is still the system. Um, I work on now with my group and that we will be, I think, talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's always fascinating to me uh, because the social insects, you know, everyone's familiar with the bumblebees, the wasps, the ants, termites, right? We all see these things, but they seem so foreign to humans, right? Like the hive lifestyle, the queen, they're all sisters. It's, It's a very seemingly different lifestyle than humans. But as we're going to discuss today, there's a lot of sort of similarities when it comes down to, yeah, social living, organization, all of these kind of things. So I'm just fascinated by by this topic. Um, I'm trying to think of the best way to approach all of the things that I want to talk to you about. So maybe the maybe we can start with, well, you could maybe advise me. Does it make sense to introduce the ant, the, the the species first, and then go into sort of the evolution of social living? Or do you want to talk about uh, the nature paper that you did, the evolution of social living, uh, and we'll introduce the ants along the way? 
Hmm. Kind of put you on the spot there. I think we need to talk about. I think I think we need to talk about the ends first because the study really wouldn't have been the same or might not have been possible in that way without us even knowing that those ants okay. existed. Okay, let's let's introduce us to the the clonal raider ants. All right. So, I think most people will be familiar with the idea that uh, uh, social insect colonies usually have uh, queens that are, you know. Uh, the only reproducing individual or individuals in a colony, uh, as well as workers who are less reproductive or often completely sterile indiv- individuals and who take care of you know everything else in the colony. They clean, they defend the nest, they take care of the brood and so on. And that makes social insects quite interesting because they have evolved this really sophisticated form of division of labor, right? Like the, the reproductive division of labor. And you also find other forms of division of labor between the workers who take on, for example, different tasks. But those differences are often fixed at the adult um, stage. So a queen is a closes as, as an adult as a queen, and then there's no way back, right, in most cases. Um, and so that means that there's really kind of limited flexibility in those behaviors. And um, so... Around the time that I finished my PhD, I heard about this ant species, the clonal raider ant, which has a number of characteristics that makes it both super interesting and special, and also extremely convenient, in my <laughs> view. And the first one is that they actually have no queens. So I know that might sound a little bit counter-intuitive, um, um, and that that's kind of not the norm among social insects, mm-hmm. but that is super convenient because they... Um, in most other social insects, a functional colony needs to have a queen. And then um, often that complicates experiments a lot, right? You need many of those queens. They are by nature genetically different from each other. You don't necessarily know their history. Um, and then the colonies need to are those very large, complex units that you can't really um, break down. You often don't know what's in the colony. But in this system, because the clonal radian has no queens, you can make those small colonies that are just composed of workers. And each of those units is, you know, completely uh, identical to each. Those units are identical to each other, and um, they are fully functional without a queen. So you can take a large colony, you split it up in many smaller colonies, and all those colonies are good to go. So that's very practical. Um, and yet they are able to develop. They still have kind of morphological differences that are small, but there, um, and which kind of vary along this worker queen um, axis, right? So some individuals are a bit larger and they have more, uh, over, like uh, higher ovary activity and therefore higher reproductive potential. So you still have a little bit of variation along the worker queen axis, but you have a handle on it. Mm-hmm. And um, that's quite convenient. So that's the first thing. They are queenless. Um, and all work, so colonies are made up of workers and all those workers can do everything. They reproduce, uh, they can, you know, switch tasks and so on. They forage, they take care of the brood. Uh, and the other thing is that all those uh, workers are also um, reproduced asexually. So actually the system has almost completely lost males as well. Hmm. And um, the workers are females, as in other social insects. And they basically reproduce by laying unfertilized eggs that produce genetically identical copies of themselves. So within a colony, all the ants are genetically nearly identical. And uh, once a month, usually, they will produce new uh, ants that are, again, genetically identical to themselves. And that's really neat because um, that's also not 
super common, I would say, across ants. It happens, but it's, it's not the norm by far. Uh, and that's really convenient because it gives you a handle and a control over genetic background, which is something that, you know, in most experiments will often have an influence on pretty much anything you study, right? It can influence behavior, it can influence disease susceptibility. So it's really nice to be able to control that in the lab. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the final thing is um, that they not only, so those workers in clone and radar and colonies, they not only reproduce asexually, so clonally, but they also reproduce in synchrony. Uh, and so in practice, that means that in any given colony of clonal radar ants, all the workers will lay eggs within 24 hours of each other, so within a really restricted um, time frame in synchrony, and they do this about once a month, about every five weeks. Um, that's really peculiar as well. Um, and um, But one consequence of that is that all um, adults will emerge in really discrete age cohorts. Um, so you have, you know, ants that are kind of one month apart um, and you have those very kind of neatly uh, arranged um, age cohorts. And that is, again, super convenient because it makes it pretty easy to control age, to get a lot of individuals of exactly the same age. And that's important in social insects because age really also influences behavior mm -hmm. as well as many other traits. So being able to control all those features is kind of uh, an experimentalist's dream to some extent. Right, right. And that's, yeah, that's what I wanted them thinking here of trying to summarize this all. And I think that's, that's actually, I'm glad we started this way because that's super important. Uh, that's one of the things when I was reading your papers that you mentioned, and it, it makes a lot of sense that if you want to sort of study anything experimentally uh, using, you know, animal models or otherwise, age, genetic background are things that are very difficult to control for, but they will influence a lot of the different traits that you're looking at, right? And so in this system, yeah, you actually exactly. have, you can, because you can split these into smaller groups and they'll, they'll function fine as little uh, colonies or little groups, you can have, you know, you can actually make a bunch of replicate sort of groups that are the same age, the same genetic background, uh, all of these things, and then run sort of experiments on behavior or whatever else it might be and you kind of are controlling for these other confounding factors that you wouldn't be able to do if you were just observing animals in the wild or say, you know, even people that run experiments with mice or, or other animals, you don't have that level of control over these two really big factors, right? Exactly. I mean, the, the closest thing are indeed those model systems, right? Mm -hmm. Where people have created inbred lines to control genetic background and so on. But that wasn't really available for social insects. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so with social insects, I think for most of my PhD, you had to deal with those kind of uncontrolled levels of complexity and diversity, which are super interesting, but, you know, kind of can add factors in your experiments that you don't know about or that you don't really want to be there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, exactly. Okay. So now that we see the system, we see the benefits of the system, we've been introduced to this really unique ant, social insect. The first thing uh, that I'd like to then move to is the social living, the evolution of social living, which is something you discussed in a, in a nature paper in 2018. And it's again, not, it's something that I think a lot of people, you know, we realize that we're social animals. We, we understand this. You hear it in popular science stuff all the time, you know, human cooperation, that's been our successful trait. Uh, but we often 
make the comparison to you know chimpanzees or or great apes or other social living mammals but if we wanted to look at the evolution of social living group living um, it might make sense to look at something a little more i don't know if ancient is the right word but social insects could give us a good understanding of how that dynamic evolved and what are the benefits and trade-offs to evolving as a group living species am i on the right trail here yeah i would say so yeah social living of course as human we think of it as you know we are the most sophisticated social creatures right we like to that that's kind of a natural thing to think because we have i mean yeah we have pretty complex social life right mm -hmm. um and i think some traits are uniquely human but when you think of the animal kingdom um widely i would say many people agree actually that social insects have pushed it arguably a little bit further than us mm -hmm. in many ways right um and and what's quite interesting there is that um they are extremely successful as well social insects as a as a group right uh, i think the numbers are they they represent only 2% of insect species but they uh, account for over 50% of the total insect biomass so they are really super dominant and they kind of really um in just sheer biomass they dominate many ecosystems especially in the tropics of course they are very small so we don't really know you know it's you can live a whole life without really paying attention to them but they are there and they do extremely well so um yeah so in that sense i would say there are many um independent evolutions of social life and uh they of course in in our in our groups uh, so in primates and so on but social insects have done it over and over again and also extremely successfully um but in a slightly different way than 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 we have right so like for example they have evolved um this reproductive division of labor that that we don't have uh but in many ways then kind of um when you look at social insect colonies in terms of like their their size for example uh and their success they are you know comparable to to human societies i think mm -hmm. yeah so what were the questions then that you were you were looking at because it seemed if i understood uh, the paper correctly going through it there was a question of what would be the initial payoff or it might there might be an initial hurdle to overcome yeah. in terms of benefit uh that an organism would get from social living that maybe evolutionary theory wouldn't really predict um i'm trying to think of a better way maybe to explain that for the audience that but the benefits of social living might not be obvious so it's uh it's maybe peculiar that it was selected for um in the early stages is that sort of the idea yeah absolutely i think i think yeah that 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 that's it and um so essentially what's impressive about social insects is you know those really elaborate super complex forms like colonies that contain millions of individuals those super large queens and so on but that's a pretty um derived trait evolutionarily and so things must have started in smaller groups and before these very elaborate forms of division of labor right um and so really what we set out to do is to use the cloned radar ant which doesn't have this you know crazy morphological specialization which doesn't have queens which um all individuals look more or less the same we know they have the ability to everybody can do everything in those groups uh and so what we set out to do is to ask um 
whether division of labor could arise in um, in those small in those groups, and also at which group size it could emerge, right? Mm. So because initially, of course, social groups were not composed of millions of individuals. They had to start small and they had to start simple. So what we wanted to see uh, was whether, you know, very simply, it could emerge uh, almost spontaneously in very small groups of uh, individuals that are near identical in that case. Mm -hmm. And so... um, and we thought the clonal redent, well, it's one of the few systems that actually allows you to do that because you can make groups of slightly different um, size very easily. Um, and you can make sure that group size is the only thing that varies, right? It's not like the bigger groups have more genetic diversity or it's not that the bigger groups have more um, uh, variation in age because this could explain you know, more division of labor through other mechanisms that simply... Um, coming together and forming those small groups that become sl- slightly larger over time. Ah, okay. So the, the real, the real you know, testing uh, variable then is group size, initial group size. That was the focus. We wanted to see, and we, of course, we measured um, fit, so what we call fitness. We measured how well those groups did um, because we wanted to also be able to have a readout. So we, we, had group, we, we varied group size and we quantified how that affected division of labor and also performance, right? And we really saw that two things came in hand in hand. Okay. So what was the what was the performance metric? How do you how do you measure the performance of a of a small ant group? Yeah. So as in in biology in general, you know, success is uh, how many genes you pass on. So it's it's uh, you know like reproduction and and survival. So those are the two things that we measured, and then you can combine them to uh, in in some kind of colony growth rate, which measures how well how well an um, an individual does on average in a small group versus a large group. And we could see that really um, both. So those those benefits of of increasing group size kicked in. Uh, extremely early, actually, earlier than we we, we thought. And so um, we showed that groups that contain really as little as um, six ants had division of labor and also did much better than colonies of like two ants or one ant. Wow. Okay. So there was, yeah, there was a benefit right away, even at six ants to you're going to have a higher fitness. They're going to start saying, exactly. you know, you're going to do this job, we're going to do this job. So does it say something about, is the benefit then, because this is, I think, the other question is, is it division of labor? Is it that they can do things more efficiently? Are they, you know, is there, like, what is it about then this group living that mm-hmm. that is so, that makes it more uh, successful? Yeah, that's that's really the core question, right? So when group living arises, you almost always see some form of division of labor. It's not only true for group living, but it's also true for, you know, the evolution of multicellularity, for example, which is also an example where small units get together and form a larger entity, really, that is functionally integrated. Um, And so the idea is really division of labor is um, at the core of those uh, elaborations of life, right, into more complex units, uh, and that this is the true evolutionary advantage, that it provides a, an advantage that is so large that it promotes 
uh, you know, in this case, the evolution of um, social life. Uh, but how exactly that happens is still kind of an open question. Um, and so I think in that, in that 2018 study, we could really show that those things came together. Uh, and we propose uh, an, an idea like that comes from our own data, for example. Uh, but we couldn't show for we couldn't really causally demonstrate that um, increasing division of labor causally affects, causally improves fitness. Mm -hmm. And that's because, you know, we, we, we manipulated group size, not the behavior directly. But that, that's a kind of experimentalist, uh, maybe uh, nitpicking here. Yeah. But so what you see essentially is that, so the, the, the advantages, the, the benefits of division of labor could come about via different uh, mechanisms, at least, you know, in principle. Um, one is that you, if you're a specialist, you can become better at what you do, either through learning um, or like you know, experience and so on. Um, it's also possible that even without, you know, even without being better at a job, the simple fact that you don't waste time uh, switching between tasks improves efficiency at the level of the group, right? You don't have to constantly uh, move from one job to the other and you don't waste time moving between those tasks. Um, and what we observed actually also in, in our end, own end colonies in that experiment um, is that there was um, an advantage in the sense that as soon as you reach a certain group size, the likelihood that one of the jobs that you have to do is uh, neglected, is abandoned, like no one does it, that decreases significantly. So in, in, in our case, we looked at, for example, um, the likelihood that the larvae were unattended for, mm -hmm. and that'd be quite... That I think that can be quite intuitive for parents, for example, <laughs> um, that if, um, you know, you leave your, your young unattended for a while, they might fight with each other. So like those, those uh, ant larvae, for example, are prone to eating each other even. Um, and so we found that as groups became larger uh, and for the same amount of work per individual, the likelihood that the larvae were not attended for decreased. And so it could be that simply in larger groups, um, you become better at, you know, performing all the tasks at a sufficient level all the time, mm -hmm. rather than having those kind of um, large fluctuations. You know, so you, it, it's hard for a single individual, for example, you, you, you simply cannot do all the tasks at the same time. So you have to switch by definition. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you have two individuals, maybe you can, you know. One stays home with the larvae, the other one goes out to forage and so on. And those effects seem to really scale up uh, as group size increases. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The other thing that, that stood out to me was the idea of homeostasis. So keeping everything, you know, in a, exactly. in a, is that kind of what you're talking about here? Or is that sort of another element to it? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So exactly. So homeostasis is this notion that you can uh, maintain some parameter within an acceptable, you know, within a, a good range. Um, and the idea is that uh, our colonies seem to be more homeostatic, so better able to maintain stable task performance, right? That they wouldn't like abandon a task for any given uh, time when those colonies were of a sufficient size. And the example I gave of the larvae would be homeostasis in, for example, brood care, right? In how, how well you take care of the next generation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's just when you have that division of labor, everyone sort of kind of specializing to a certain job, no job is being left unattended, every job sort of stays within that range of 
care or attention that it needs. So the homeostasis across the group is maintained. Exactly. Yeah, that's really interesting. There, I mean, I, I'm not super familiar with it, but um, there was a book uh, called The Tinkerer's Apprentice, and I know it had some criticism from evolutionary biologists. I'm not sure if you're aware of this book, but it was based on homeostasis, the idea that um, groups and cells and everything are kind of striving for homeostasis. And that's one of the things that that keeps these these groups, you know, together or keeps these systems functioning. And I just I've always the idea of homeostasis and trying to organisms sort of pushing against entropy to sort of maintain these bubbles of, you know, acceptable living conditions or acceptable ranges has always been a fascinating one for me. And that's kind of what what poked out yeah. to me in this is yeah. that, you know, that's one of the advantages of group living is that you can really work together to keep everything within these you know, acceptable ranges. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's true at, you know, all um, levels of biological organization, right? I think we we are maybe more familiar with the concept of homeostasis in a multicellular body, but of course each, you know, so a body has to maintain its temperature, has to maintain its core functions, like, uh, you know, I don't know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, digestions or osmosis and so on. And and then the, 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 the cells within the body also have to do that. And then kind of the notion that social groups also have to maintain the homeostasis uh, is quite interesting to me, right? Mm -hmm, that, mm -hmm. that those things are true at many different scales. Yeah, it's that it's that interesting sort of, and I don't know how much we can really like derive from it. Maybe it's just, maybe not a coincidence, but the fact that it does kind of scale up from, from a cell to a group of cells, to tissues, to an organism, to multiple organisms like it is a really nice you know sort of scaling up that you can see uh, in these things and that's just I don't know in a way it kind of gives you a nice you know a lot of times in science there's not a lot of closure you know it is always but it's like yeah. to see this sort of <laughs> pathway kind of emerge it's like oh okay that feels right yeah <laughs> you know and I know that's totally unscientific yeah. that's just my own uh, that's just my own personal uh, enjoyment with the subject and stuff but anyway yeah so in social insects actually like this is a, an analogy so there's this analogy that you might have heard of the super organism mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That, that, you know, insect societies are more than just a social group. Actually, they are integrated to the point that you could consider the colony, first of all, as the unit under selection, that the, the, the evolutionary unit, but also as maybe a single organism, right? Mm -hmm. Because the queen is analogous to the germline of, you know, uh, a multicellular animal. The workers are the somatic cells, you know, the liver cell, the neurons, and so on. And, um, and I know many analogies tend to have limits and you know sometimes um, there's there's this tendency to like try to to make too much out of them but this one analogy of the superorganism is one that I still like and still use mm -hmm. conceptually in how I design experiments and how we do our, our work in my group you know uh, almost a decade on so you know this this has been one that is that is kind of still has a lot of appeal and and I find quite useful conceptually to use yeah 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 that's always it's nice when you have those you know metaphors analogies that kind of thing that that sort of maintain you know like you said there's no perfect one it's just like model systems right like there's no perfect one but this seems to work pretty well and so <laughs> keep going with it yeah. 
All right. The next thing then, and this is what, you know, really fascinated me about your work when, uh, when, when my wife came back from the conference where she met you, she was like, you need to talk about the infection work that you've done with ants. Cause that was uh, sort of the, my PhD was all about parasites, parasitism, uh, ecology right. of parasites. So I've long been fascinated with infectious disease, epidemiology, all of these kind of parameters. And unfortunately, we all got introduced to that a couple years ago. Mm. Uh, so we're all now kind of familiar with some of these, you know, terms, some of these, you know, concepts. Um, and group living is one of the things we just talked about how efficient it is, how it, it makes sense evolutionarily, that it would evolve even at small group sizes, some of the benefits but one of the costs is infection risk. So when one individual gets infected, they can then spread it to the group. And there's been constantly this, you know, people call it the arms race, right, between parasites or viruses, bacteria, pathogens, and groups and individuals and all this, all this stuff. So you looked at some of these factors and you were specifically interested in behavior. So where an individual chooses to move within its group or, you know, is, is destined to move, I guess destined is the wrong word, but what their job is, you know, dictates where they move in a group. And pathogens also have, you know, particular places where transmission is higher. So there's a lot of factors going on here. So maybe I'll give it to you to try and explain your study rather than sort of throw out a bunch of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Okay, but you got it right. It's like a very <laughs> good uh, uh, intro for the study. Yeah, so basically, I think the starting point for this work was that, um, and first of all, I want to say this this work uh, and, and the, the kind of proposal that went to it was done before the pandemic. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. So this was not something that was actually triggered by the, the, the COVID pandemic, but that suddenly became, you know, some of the questions became suddenly things that were on everybody's mind. Mm -hmm. So it has become surprisingly very easy to introduce that work because you find that most people in the audience actually have become unwilling experts of, you know, exactly. <laughs> disease transmission and then have, have had to think about those questions a lot. And so I think this would be quite intuitive for, for most listeners. So essentially, when you think of, uh, as you said, social groups are very susceptible to, to disease um, um, transmission because of those high rates of interaction between individuals. So this is, is a major risk of, of group living. Um, and in many social groups, you know, there are many, many factors that will influence your likelihood to become um, infected by something, right? There's, again, there's your, there's your genetic background, there's your age, um, there's where you go, with whom you interact, and so on. Uh, many different factors that uh, complicate the question, and, uh, and often in, in, you know, like, for example, natural populations of animals, it's very hard to know which, you know, to, to, in, uh, to what extent each of those factors um, played a role in that individual animal being sick now, right? Um, and we thought that, well, the clonal reagent is, is quite nice again to disentangle those, those effects. Um, and by then we had developed those, those tools that allow to really follow the behavior of each individual in a group, um, which we could deploy for, to, to address questions about uh, disease transmission. And so the question that we wanted to address first here was, well, we've all been thinking a lot about 
or like we, we are all well aware now that your own behavior is an important factor in or like is, is going to influence your likelihood to become infected because again where you go with whom you interact what you do um, are, are all things that very intuitively you know sh should affect the likelihood that you are contract an infectious disease. Um, and But often those things will correlate with other things. So for example, in the context of the pandemic, we know that young people, of course, they are younger, but they also behave differently, mm -hmm. right? So they might be more prone to go to parties or they might, you know. Um, but young age also impacts uh, the immune system. So, you know, there might be different effects playing out in the outcome of uh, an infection and, and many of those are confounded or like they correlate in a way and they're hard to disentangle. And so what we set out to do was to use the clonal redundant. By that point, we knew that we would have differences in uh, behavior, that we would have division of labor, even among clonal individuals of the same age. And we knew this from the 2018 study. Um, we, know, we knew that those differences would emerge in, in, in you know, small uh, clonal radar and colonies. And we wanted to know whether then those individuals that took on different jobs in the colony, that took on different tasks, were then at different um, risk of becoming infected, in that case, with a nematode uh, that we study in the lab. And um, uh, and it was the case, and it was very clearly the case. So the differences were pretty strong. So if you're a forager in an ant colony, um, and forager means you go out of the nests, you tend to explore, to look for food, and to you know cover a more uh, a broader, also spatial um, uh, range. Like you, you go to many different places, and we found that foragers were at a much higher risk to become infected. They become infected earlier. Uh, more of them become infected. And also they end up with higher parasite loads um, than their genetically identical nestmates who tended to stay in the nest more. Mm -hmm. So that's a very simple finding, but one that really shows that behavior itself, so behavior alone, can drive the risk of becoming infected. And also a consequence, a direct consequence of that is that so the distribution of parasites in a social group really reflects division of labor within that group, right? To the point that you may, if in those um, experiments, we might even have, we didn't try, but we might have been able to guess what uh, behavioral role an individual was uh, in charge, uh, or what behavioral role an individual had based on its infection load. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's something that's, again, it's it it feels intuitive to us, and, and I think especially now, like you said, this work was was started before the pandemic, but now we've all become you know, sort of accustomed to thinking about this, or we were all introduced to it. And that's kind of intuitive, right? Like it makes sense. If you're going to go out into the world where the where the parasites are, where the pathogens are, you're more likely to to get to get more parasites, right? But it's something again that we don't necessarily think of on a deeper level other than that, or at least we didn't, maybe now we do, but that your behavior and, you know, in this case, like the job that you're required to do. Uh, in the group is going to put you at a higher risk. Um, but so then what are the, what is sort of the, the, the consequences of that, you know, from an evolutionary perspective or from a group living perspective, is there, is the idea that, well, the group then has to, you know, sort of devise ways to, um, you know, halt the spread or, you know, maybe it's in, in other groups where genetics does play a role, you know, certain individuals will have a different genetic disposition against 
different parasites. Like, what's the consequence of this? Once now that we know, like you said, a sort of neat, simple finding that some people are going to have more risk than others. What what do we? What's the next question? What's the what's the consequence of this for the group? Oh yes, okay. And first of all, I I, I should be clear that I, I cannot give any public health. Advice. No, for sure, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I don't know what we should do in in human societies. I can tell you a little bit about what how ants deal with those things, both at kind of the um, evolutionary level, how how it what kind of behaviors they have evolved to deal with those things, um, and also at the proximate level, which is how they immediately uh, react. So um, in general, in ants, uh, colonies, normal ant colonies, in which you know you, you have normal um, uh, demographic structure, like variation and so on, like larger um, natural colonies that you might find outside your house, um, it's always the old individuals that go out. Mm. Or like there's a very strong tendency for older individuals to go out and forage, um, and to be exposed to the external environment. And uh, and this is really one of the few things that are true, that seem to be true across the board. It happens in honeybees, it happens in ants, and I think virtually any uh, social insects where this pattern, when where this question has been um, um, looked at. And the idea is that, well, you, <laughs> those tasks are riskier. They are not only riskier in terms of, of uh, pathogens, but you know, also predation and so on. You're, right. you're more like, you're, it's more dangerous to go yeah. out. And and so there's an idea that basically then you give those tasks to the older individuals in the colony because those have uh, lower residual value, lower remaining value to the colony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's a very harsh <laughs> calculation, but yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, nature is harsh, and uh, and so that that's the idea, right? That's um, and then you don't expose your younger workforce to to those risks, or you only expose them to to those risks later on, when uh, they have already kind of um, uh, contributed to the to the to the colony's uh, success. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's kind of one of the the, the evolutionary um, explanations for like how like how you can kind of mitigate that risk um, by by um, sending a, a, a subpart of the, the social group to 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 the external environment, um, and and luckily we don't do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yes, and then also so basically the the idea is also that our social insects have evolved ways to um, that to organize the colonies in a way that then limits the spread of those pathogens. Um, within the colony. So again, within a normal ant colony, not all individuals have the same um, value to the colony. Right? The queen is super important. If there's a queen, then she's super important because she is the only one who can reproduce. If the queen dies in many um, ant colonies, the colony dies. Mm-hmm. And so it's thought that that social insects have evolved um, many, many strategies to, to kind of um, limit the spread of infectious disease in the, in, in the colony. And one of them is that they seem to have um, limited, restricted interactions between um, groups of workers who have different jobs, essentially, right? So that the foragers, who are the ones who go outside and are more, most likely to bring back pathogens to the nest, those foragers will not interact with the queen. And they will only have limited interactions with the the the, the workers that are uh, the entourage of of the queen, if you want. Right. And so there's a there's a notion that basically the structure of social networks within a colony and the spatial segregation and the way they organize themselves um, has evolved 
to some extent at least to, to protect the colony against, you know, uncontrolled pathogen spread. And so, and, and, and those structures of social networks, some people or other, not, not us, but other studies have shown that they can even change plastically upon exposure to pathogens, right? Mm. Uh, and that's really interesting. So like they seem to be able to, they, they have those constitutive levels of defense, which are represented by how they are organized, you know, at baseline in normal conditions. And when they detect the presence of a pathogen, they seem to be able to strengthen those those barriers even. Mm -hmm. um, but what we saw in our own study was something different altogether. And what we observed um, is that upon exposure to those nematodes, so the individuals that are exposed, actually tend to spend more time in the nest. And this from the the host perspective from the uh, from the ant's perspective is not very good right so mm -hmm. if you're infected and then you run back to the nest and then spend all your time you know in the nest that that seems counterintuitive because then you are you, you should be at a higher um risk of propagating the disease yeah it's like the opposite of quarantine country. right yeah <laughs> exactly exactly um and so this this kind of surprised us to be honest like we were expecting um so the ants to to do something uh, and different uh, entirely and we ended, we're still not sure but this made us think that maybe the, the 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 parasite itself that or like that the behavioral changes in the hosts uh, as we observe them if anything should benefit the parasite mm -hmm. which again raises a a host of uh, other interesting questions, some of which you you have studied yourself, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. The idea of the parasite manipulating the host in a, for its own benefit. Yeah, uh, I think this is, you know, again, like we would think. Yeah, and obviously, yeah, you can't give public health advice, and and you know, it's you know, a model system of ants is very different than humans and stuff. But it's fascinating to me, you know, this idea that our relationship with pathogens you know, all of organisms' relationships with pathogens really does structure or influence evolution in a way, how we evolve, how we live, right? So the ants have evolved these, you know, kind of barriers uh, in their division of labor that is a protection against disease. Like there's so many things, uh, other social groups, you know, whether it's grooming or, you know, things like this, like there's all of these intrinsic behaviors that are because of our relationship with pathogens in the outside world and stuff. And so in a way, you know, again, I don't want to keep hammering on the, pan the pandemic experience, but that was a very shocking thing for most people. But when you think about it, it's really like, it's such an intrinsic part of life, <laughs> you know, of being a, a, a living thing is dealing with infection and how that influences our behaviors and how our behaviors influences infection risk. So these are all like really sort of fundamental questions and really kind of fascinating. Uh, I wonder what you think of that sort of statement. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I always really try hard not to anthropomorphize my ants mm -hmm, and, you mm -hmm. know, <laughs> try to be careful not to extrapolate too much. But in, in this context, it was really hard not to draw parallels sometimes, right? Because, the, for example, this, this different exposure to disease that different members of a group uh, are facing, we, we saw it in the pandemic uh, to some extent in the, in the context of, you know, healthcare workers they were in mm -hmm. yeah, front yeah, lines yeah. and they were taking risks, right, consciously um, to be exposed to, to, this, to this pathogen in order to take care of, of other uh, people, right? Um, 
and 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 studies as well, right? They they do care for 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 each other. So like, um, you will often see them grooming each other when when a nestmate is exposed um, to a disease. You know, instead of of ignoring that 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 individual altogether or just letting it to to deal with infection on on their own. So there's a lot of um, helping behavior. There's a lot of uh, of care behavior that that you see in, in societies that we we also uh, have, obviously. Yeah, I think it's like. And again, not to like get too, you know, draw too many conclusions or anything like this. But again, like a sort of big takeaway for me is kind of just that like, you know, maybe the the response that we had to, you know, f- maybe facing this sort of these kind of fears, you know, in a, in a large scale way for the first time, it seemed like so chaotic, right? When really you would think that like every person has sort of a, an understanding of infection. We all know to cover our mouths. You know, like we, we, we understand the basics of it and we understand that there's this sort of, um, you know, big groups are going to transmit things. And obviously we're not going to go as far as the ants to like sacrifice the old people, you know, like that, that <laughs> sort of thing. Uh, but I would have thought there would have been a little bit more coordination and maybe it's just our group sizes are too big. And obviously there's a lot of other social factors and stuff that go into it. But it is really fascinating to me how that how we all sort of face this question and we can now kind of look back and say, well, you know, that made sense. That didn't make sense, that sort of thing. But again, to me, the fundamentally, the principles are, they're really not hard uh, to understand. And when you look at the ants and how they do it, it's really quite on display, right? Like you, you keep people kind of segregated as much as you can limit contact between different, you know, it's all very basic stuff, but it's really cool to see it. Uh, uh, and actually, you know, test it experimentally and say, okay, well, we did, we ran the experiment and, you know, this is what happened, you know, whereas you can't really do that in natural populations, as you said. So um, to, to move away from the pandemic, I'm sure people are, are tired of, you know, talking about this too much, <laughs> but we, we can't avoid it in this topic. I am curious then, you, you touched on just briefly there that the ants infected with this parasite did the opposite of what you expected. And that is that they spent more time in the nest. Um, now, it's very challenging to know whether that is parasite manipulation absolutely, versus just a side effect of being sick, right? Like exactly. maybe they just, they have this infection, they feel, you know, as much as an ant can feel under the weather. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then therefore it can't you know, do its normal job or it's somehow dis- its normal behaviors are disrupted. But this is a very interesting um, area, right? So how much of it is parasite? How much of it is host? How much of it is coincidence? Is there a mechanism there? These are the questions that really, really fascinated me. And I think that it's one of these things that we see again in the popular media, right? Like the zombie parasite. Mm-hmm. And I think that sometimes it gets a little you know, the, a little overblown, you know, in terms of is the parasite really, my example is always toxoplasma. Is it really doing all of these things that people say it's doing crazy cat one? So um, just maybe your thoughts on this dynamic, this host parasite manipulation, how it's so, it makes sense that it would evolve from a parasite point of view. And I know you can't maybe say uh, in your system what's going on, but you did um, identify a few things in terms of where the parasite was infecting that might 
you know, show that there is a behavioral change or there's a reason for the behavioral change? Yeah. So, yeah, again, the bar to demonstrate parasite manipulation of host behavior is very high. And I don't think it's easy mm -hmm. to clear that bar. And we definitely haven't yet, although we would mm -hmm. like to. Um, and what kind of piqued our interest? So, first of all, as you said, we were expecting, you know, the ants to, to react by, you know, isolating. Maybe the infected ones would like... Um, stay away from the nest or whatnot. And we, we saw, if anything, the opposite, which came as a surprise to us. But then, of course, ants are known both for their super elaborate defenses, collective behavioral defenses against disease, but they're also known for some of the most iconic examples of um, parasites manipulating host behavior, one of which mm -hmm. you, you worked uh, on, the Um and um, uh, and of course we were aware of both, and so basically in the case, so as I said, we were working on uh, parasite, parasitic nematodes. Um, there's very little known on those. Uh, actually, we had to really dig in very very old literature to to find anything that that you know kind of any paper that would say something about nematodes uh, infecting and heads. Um, and but it ha it just so happens that they infect uh, a very social uh, organ in ants. So uh, they infect the head. We initially thought they infected the brain, and then it, it turns out that we were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and then head is pretty small. It's easy it's easy to 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 mix up organs. But they don't infect the brain. But they infect an organ that's just next to the brain, um, and that's a gland that is considered to be a very social organ in ants because it is involved. Um, in the storage and the exchange, the social exchange of molecules um, that in turn allow the ants to tell who is from their colony and who is an outsider. Mm -hmm. And so basically, the simple fact that the nematodes infected that gland, and so as far as we can tell, that gland only, suggested that it should do something to social behavior, right? Um, and so in the the... Uh, paper we published, we just could show we could just show that it did something to um, individual behavior in the sense that in colonies where everybody is in, in, in infected and you know of the same genotype, then you see this change in behavior. But the fact that we find it in that gland in particular raised the question of what whether what it does to what we call nestmate recognition. So in other words, the ability of ants to tell who is from their colony and who is not. And so the experiments that we are doing now is to see whether it um, essentially affects the ability of ants to detect nestmates. And usually the, the way you run those experiments is that you put ants from different colonies in the same arena. Um, and in normal conditions, if they are um, uh, from different colonies, they will, they will fight. So it sounds like an experiment that many, you know, children have done mm -hmm. in in, <laughs> in their garden. <Yeah. laughs> well, we are doing it for real. Um, and this time we use uh, uninfected uh, ants and infected ants. And we, we, we want we want to see whether there's a change in how they um, uh, attack or accept each other as a as a as a as a consequence hmm. of, of infection, essentially. And this 
if we see effects there, you know, this might in turn have effects on, on colony composition, colony structure, and, and, and so on. And so in terms of the, the manipulation itself, we, we do not know yet. And I think we would need to do a lot more experiments to uh, conclusively demonstrate that there is indeed some, you know, for example, neurological effect of the nematodes on, on the host. Yeah. And again, just thinking of sort of a broad, uh, like a big picture kind of you know, thoughts about this sort of work, it again highlights, you know, even if it's not direct, you know, parasite driven manipulation, it just shows how an infection can have consequences on an individual's behavior, which then has consequences on their group behavior and group infection risk and all of these things. So it's just, again, showing how all of these things, things that we think of as uh, intrinsically our own, you know, our own, mm-hmm. uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Free will, right? Like I'm in charge of my behavior. So I get, I, you know, but really there's so many of these other factors that you don't even really kind of consider or think about that sort of bump up against all of these other things. And it's just part of living, living in a group and living, uh, exposed to, to different, uh, viruses and pathogens and, and things like this. So it's, to me, it's like on a big picture level, that's kind of what's really fascinating. I want to throw one more at you uh, and we could start to wind down that we've almost an hour. So uh, don't take too much of your time. But what is it about ants that they seem to be the ones that get <laughs> infected with all the crazy, you know, host manipulating ones? And I think in some ways, some of them, like you can look at cordyceps, right? Cordyceps fungus, which everybody, yeah. I think, that's the one that most people know mm. about, right? The fungus that grows in the brain and comes out and that kind of thing, right? Um, that makes sense because it's a, you, you the, the fungus, the way it disperses, it wants to be, it wants yeah. to release its spores when there's a lot of individuals around. So you have high density of social insects that, that makes sense, right? Like that makes sense from the parasite point of view. Uh, the one that you're studying that may or may not be a, a manipulation, the transmission could be from, you know, being close to each other. That's maybe not totally known yet. Mm. But the one that I looked at, dichrocelium, the transmission of the parasite is not relevant on uh, exactly. being close yeah. to other ants, right? The ants get the parasite by eating this, uh, you know, excretion from a snail, from the first host, the snail. And then once they're infected, mm-hmm. they don't pass it on to other ants. They're just an intermediate step. But yet again, you know, evolution has allowed this parasite to really, really finely con- control this ant. I think it's one of the examples where you can really, you know, it's met the high bar of yes. uh, parasite manipulation, you know. But it's just there's something about ants, it seems, that they, they're yeah. the ones that yeah. seem to get hijacked That's such an by these things question. all the time. And of course, you know, you have a handful of those examples and it's hard to say whether that represents really, you know, how... It's hard to say whether ants are really kind of overrepresented in, in, in those cases. But, but I think it's easy to imagine why they might be. You know, as I said, they are everywhere in very large numbers. Um, and in a way, from a parasite perspective, mm. they might... You know, they're just kind of numerous. Yeah. Like you can find yeah, them yeah. everywhere. They're an easy right? target in that sense, yeah. 
Exactly. And then, of course, not in the case of Dicrosolium, but in the case of directly transmitted or parasites that only live in ants or social insects and that transmit from um, ant to ant, for example. A colony is like ideal, right? You, you never have, like, a, a social insect colony is perfect. Like, you have a very high number, very high density of hosts. They live in those, you know, protected colonies that have ample resources that are homeostatic, as we said. Often they have stored resources. The temperature mm -hmm. is, you know, the temperature is uh, stable and so on. Um, and all those hosts are not only, you know, plentiful, but they are also generally genetically related. So if you can infect one, the likelihood that you can infect all of them is very high. Right, yeah. um, and so that's this idea that from a parasite perspective, social insect colonies are extremely attractive, should should be very attractive. Right? Um, and so again, that's that's a, that's an appealing idea. It's hard to, to it's hard to really test because again, you know, like the ants are pretty good at defending against that. So everything you're ever observing is just one snapshot of an arms race. Um, but I think it makes sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. It does make sense. And again, I think just to sort of maybe start summarizing, you know, sort of the takeaways of this conversation and of, of this work, it to me it comes back again to this uh the cost and benefit of of group living right so you have this extreme example of group living and social insects where maximum benefit they found a way to maximally benefit social living and as you said taken over a large you know section niche of of ecosystems all around the world so it's clearly very successful but with every you know, lifestyle, there's vulnerabilities, right? That, 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 that pop up from that. Exactly. You can never plug mm -hmm. all the holes, right? So finding these balances and I just, maybe you don't have to speculate too much out of your wheelhouse if you're not, if you're not comfortable, but is there something that we can say then about this work, about this sort of relationship between behavior, infection, um, group living that, Obviously, ant to human comparisons aren't totally necessary, and we're not asking for public health advice. But what is sort of a big takeaway from an evolutionary perspective or something about the dynamics of group living, infection, that we can maybe start to take away from this this kind of conversation? Yeah, that's a <laughs> that's a very interesting question. Not not an easy one, I would <laughs> say. So I think yeah, definitely. You know, I, I think it's pretty clear that social life has been very successful, that it that it works for, for ants really well. Uh, you know, humans are very social and uh, very clearly dominate the planet by now. And I, I think so, like, of course, you know, there, there, are, there are risks associated uh, with that. You can have conflict within a group, you know, like, and, and disease is a, an obvious one and it's very fresh on everybody's mind because we have been um, uh, faced with a very recent uh, event of a, a major infectious disease uh, outbreak. But also, I think one, one major takeaway is that both for ants and humans, you know, societies are not powerless when it comes to fighting disease. Um, and that sociality itself is a very good, allows to evolve defenses that are really effective as well and that you could not deploy mm. in a solitary context, right? So all this social care, right? Uh, help, you know, taking care of, of your, uh, of your uh, sick nestmates uh, in the, the case of ants or deploying those, you know, those, those collective um, defenses in the terms of how you organize society and so on. Um, that's also very effective. Um, and ants actually 
across the board, very good, I think, at fighting um, pathogens and, and, and parasites. Um, and you could argue that humans also are <laughs> overall. I think I think we're doing pretty well, right? Um, and then there's also, I think communication is also mm -hmm. a very important factor in, in that. So for example, we the speed at which we can exchange information or detect um, uh, cases, uh, early detection of uh, infection cases is, is a big, um, I think, advantage that you have in, in a social uh, uh, context. So ants are also very, very good at detecting sick nest mates or um, detecting, you know, the presence of pathogens in the nest. Um, and I think that's also one of the big advantages that humans have at their disposal, right? Communication, even though it's very susceptible to, of course, also misinformation. Yeah. Fascinating. Actually, I, it's, it's a good point. And Maybe I kind of wish we would have gotten there a little earlier, but <laughs> I didn't think of it. But yeah, it's like the benefits of social living. Uh, yeah, there's the there's an exposure, but the sociality actually, yeah, has unique defenses as well that, like you said, you couldn't get if you're living on your own. So that's that's really yeah. I guess that's the takeaway is like social living has all of these advantages, and one of those advantages is also dealing with infections. That's ways to deal with infections that's really cool um yeah this has been a really uh really great chat for me thank you so much for for taking the time i look forward to seeing uh the results of the ant fight experiments uh, <laughs> so i'll be looking for those when they come out and learning more about this this nematode so uh i'll be sure to to be watching and maybe when you have some more results you could come back and we could discuss those too so Thank you so much for, for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This was really fun. And thank you all for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. And we're maybe reminded that, uh, hey, working together is actually a, a pretty good thing. As always, again, rate, review, subscribe. Please, please, please. That is the best way to help out the show. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter, at 2 for you. Subscribe wherever you're getting your podcasts. Hit us with an email at 2 at gmail.com. DM us, all of those things. We want to hear from you. We are available on podcasts for YouTube, so you can check us out there if you're using that. And maybe we'll expand into video. Let's see. Maybe I just need a push from you. So reach out. Let me know what you want to see, what you want to hear, what you want to talk about. Thank you, as always, to the Freak Motif for the music. That's all I have for now. Take care, everyone. We'll talk to you next time. Bye for now.